welcome to the Prolific Pulse Poetry Podcast. This is your host, Lisa Tomey. Today, we have special guest, Andrea Carter-Brown. She is a survivor of 9-11 and is going to share with us about her book, September 12th, and her poetry and more. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss this. Welcome, the Garden of Moreau, Write, Speak, Play, and Prolific Pulse Poetry Podcast. Welcome, award-winning poet, Andrea Carter-Brown. Thank you, Andrea, for coming today to share about your book and your experiences, as well as poetry. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've listened to some of your podcasts, and I'm happy to be part of your family of, of interviewees. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a nice compliment. I appreciate that. Now, um, I know uh, we're right on the anniversary time of 9-11, and that was definitely a devastating time for you. I can't even imagine what it'd be like to be right there, ground zero. It was extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. It's taken me a long time to put my life back together. Uh, my experiences compared to other people's were relatively benign, if I can say that. Um, I, I'm alive, I'm relatively healthy. My husband's alive, he's relatively healthy. Um, we didn't lose anyone we knew personally, um, but my health was compromised. My husband's health was compromised. We're both part of the World Trade Center Health Registry for different reasons. I wanna actually take a moment to thank the taxpayers who have continued to fund that because it's a reservoir of information about how our experiences dovetail with other peoples who were directly affected that day. And um, it's, it's a good thing to have come out of all the terribleness of that day. Um, so if you have, if you have specific questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Um, I did see that there were also people from your hometown that um, lost their lives. And were yes. Yes, that I grew up, I was born and I grew up in a small suburban town in Bergen County called Glen Rock. Um, the town had 7,000 residents. It was a mile and a half in diameter. I walked to school every day. The commuters to Wall Street walked to the train station to get to work and um, if I had still been living there, chances are I would have known the 11 people who died that morning. Um, and when I learned that, that that town had lost those people, that moved my personal um, first person witness narrative into a different plane. I think in poetry, as in anything, when you have a personal connection to an event, it makes it more real. So wow. I, the, the center part of the book is about that town and about those 11 people all taken from either personal observation. Um, I went back to the town many times for research or from obituaries or memorial posts contemporary with in the few months after 9-11. Wow. So I'm, I'm planning to go back to the town when personal appearances are possible and read in the library and visit the high school and the junior high and talk to, you know, chances are by now, none of the children of the victims are still at home or in school, but it's a very close-knit community. 
they built an amazingly beautiful memorial across from the from the train station that the computer commuters took to work yeah. in a little park um and the the intimacy of that memorial is mm -hmm. reflects the feeling of living in that town right of the interconnectedness mm -hmm. so I felt when I learned that I felt I was lucky to have been given that connection mm -hmm. to the events. Um, even though I myself lived a block away and fled that morning and had my own adventure. Um, um, contemplating that the loss to that community and those families has spurred me on throughout this whole project. Right. 20 years of, of working on this. When did you start writing on your book? I would say the first poems, the first two poems were written about seven months later. Um, for the first months, I didn't write at all. Right. It was, uh, I was a little ashamed actually, because many other artists and writers were very quick to return to their work and incorporate their response to that day in their work. And I was just completely frozen. I felt like my world, the world had been taken out from under me. Um, I had a lot of health problems in response to exposure to the dust, but um, but I wanted to write, but I just couldn't. And then seven months later, I was going through boxes of stuff which had just accumulated during that time of being displaced. And I found all these little scraps of paper. So yes, I wasn't writing poetry, but I would occasionally jot down a fragment or a word or a phrase. And miraculously, those little pieces of paper on a coffee shop napkin or a torn corner of a, a newspaper page, uh, they survived, exactly. Um, and um, I, I laid them out on my desk and I thought, well, this is my first poem. And it's the poem in the book, which is called After the Disaster Fragments. It's entirely made of things that I jotted down in that time. Um, and that opened, began to open the watershed. Right. But Anyway, I'm going on and on for no, you. No, no, <laughs> no. I understand. And as a writer, I sometimes have to sit back and kind of absorb, um, sometimes grieve what's going on about a certain event before I can ever put it down on paper. And just like you, I write little notes down and my purse is full of little notes. My desk is full uh, of little notes because, you know, I just want to remember this for later when I feel like really writing about it because I know at some point the words are going to come out. So I can certainly relate to that. And I'm glad you did that. Yeah, I don't know when I would have started writing if I didn't have those talisman. Mm -hmm. um, and it's good to hear your story because um, one of the experiences of surviving that day was feeling very alone. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, the entire neighborhood was ruptured and a lot of it was destroyed. So all of our normal ways of getting to people, the subways, the buses were, they didn't know no cabs or we had a car, it was in the garage. We couldn't take the car out of the garage for months. Um, so, um, and people were staying in their own bubbles. Does this sound familiar? Yes. The experience of finishing this during the pandemic has brought back so many memories. Yes. 
I have to say it prepared me for the pandemic, but I oh. wasn't prepared for it after 9-11. Yeah. So um, anyway, I started writing and, um, and I just built this huge body of work of which the book, I guess I'm going to hold it up now. So yes, because please I'm do. so, I'm so pleased with what the publishers did with it. It's the word beautiful. Works, and my, my cover designer was inspired. Um, I didn't tell her what I wanted except that I did not want an image of the towers or of downtown Manhattan. I wanted something which was more mysterious and evocative and even both beautiful and scary, if I can say so. Um, um, so the, the book grew, it got smaller, it had new material, it lost new material. But the book that was published is, is the story or the stories that I saw as a complete book as early as a month afterwards. Wow. And I, yeah, I, I, um, and I, I tried to stay faithful to that. <laughs> and, um, and it was in the, in the beginning, it was especially hard to write because to go imaginatively to the places that I was writing about, um, brought back the physical reactions I had to the event. I would, after working for a half a day, I would, it would take me almost a week to recover. I would start coughing and sneezing. One of the things that I developed was a, a kind of asthma called reactive airways disease. Anytime I'm near a construction site, near uh, construction dust, I start, my throat gets itchy, I start coughing, I start sneezing. Um, so it was a sort of two steps forward and one step back until that got put under control with the help of a, a huge medical team. Um, and, um, and then we moved from New York City to Los Angeles um, in 2004, partly to get away from that so that I could heal. I'm just saying goodbye to my husband. <laughs> um, and um, in this sort of relative safety and beauty of Los Angeles, I set seriously to work. And this book is thanks to that move, I think, in large part. Well, it sounds like you're very determined to, to finally get those words out. And I would love to hear poetry from your book. Would you be willing to share some with us? I would love to. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, I think I will first read um, a short poem. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it up to you so you can see what it looks like. It's a poem about what it was like to live there before the towers came down. So it's a concrete poem. It's this one here with two skinny towers of words. When I read it, I read across the line break, but I try to pause so you can hear where they are. The title is Pinstriped Bullies. Some of us hated you, so tall, too skinny to be true. You swayed in wind, paired pendulums, making us seasick. Alternating vertical stripes, white, black, hurt your eyes, marble, dark glass, echoed whatever weather was moving through. We gazed up, necks aching. You ended at sky, 
until you collapsed in a cloud that rivered the blue before falling into the ocean. To live in your shadow was to feel infinitesimal. Wow. Goodness gracious. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you for listening so attentively. Would you I like want... to hear, would you like to hear the after the disaster fragments home? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Let me, let me find the page. Okay. I guess I'll show you this one too, because this one is also has a jagged edge down the middle. After the disaster, fragments. We are not starving. We are wearing shoes on our feet. We have friends to care for us. A roof, albeit borrowed. We are husbands, wives still, lovers, parents, children. But the dust of thousands has settled over our living rooms. An early snowfall in late summer, the first winter of the rest of our lives. Says so much, so much. Your form really does take the meaning of the poem. I'm glad you I'm glad you commented on that. It's something that I it's it's something that I I call it play with. Mm -hmm. It's important to me. I like formal poetry, but I don't write traditional formal poetry. I feel like it's been done well by a lot of other people. <laughs> and I don't think I can do it as well but I can modernize it and make it my own. Mm -hmm. And I do that a lot. So I think, I think some of the best poetry is that we make our own. It's, yes. It's yeah. our own unique quality and our own unique voice. It makes it so beautiful. I was wondering if anyone in the audience might have a question or so. Rena? Yeah, um, so I have a question for Andrew. When you said, roof, albeit borrowed. What did you mean? So when the towers fell, um, our apartment was covered with dust. Um, I, I think I mentioned that we lived a block away. Um, and that dust was um, toxic and had to be remediated. Uh, the remediation took months and during, um, let's see, six months, we were not legally allowed to live in the apartment. And we, we had a lot of offers of, from friends of places to stay um, uh, and a series of people took us in and then eventually we were in a friend's apartment uh, and she was out of town for the whole time. And she, it was like staying in a home I knew well, cause I had been there many times. Um, but of course the many people stayed in hotels. FEMA paid for that. Um, the Red Cross helped. Um, uh, and yeah, a complicating factor is that in addition to the dust that fell, there was no electricity. There was no, obviously no phone service. There was no heat. All of the food and all of the refrigerators had spoiled. And so, and the refrigerators had to be removed as did the heating and the air conditioning units if there were some and had to be replaced before people could move back in. And it took months to get enough. There were just the need for that 
for all of the apartments in Battery Park City, which is where I lived. And in the, you know, the few apartments which were close to the towers in, in other ways, in other directions. Um, and gradually they would replace these things. Um, um, when we moved back in in March, there still wasn't a heating unit. Um, and when it was cold, we just piled on the blankets, but we had a bed, we had blankets. Um, so does that answer your question? <laughs> it, it, it does indeed, it does indeed. Now I, I, I joined a little late, so I apologize, but I also thought there was something figurative about it, that we were on borrowed goodwill maybe? Oh, so of course, of course. Um, I mean, what I hope happens in the book is that the literal details become metaphoric. And um, certainly in the years since, and certainly in the years before, um, many people experience disaster, war, tragedy, don't have homes, lose their homes and um, live under um, temporary circumstances, some far less comfortable than what we experienced. Um, so um, the sense that the community of the community coming together and helping, when I said we had offers of places to stay, people whom we didn't know, who were friends of people that we knew would reach out to us and say, please come stay with us for as long as you want. Um, I think the, that outpouring of care and fellow feeling, I still, I have to say, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it now, 20 years later. It, it made a difference and people who didn't have that and not everybody had it who were really on their own had a much harder time um and i don't know how they're doing many people with the apartment complex that we lived in was called gateway plaza and it was the closest apartment complex to the world trade center it was the first complex built in Battery Park City after the landfill, which had been excavated to build the World Trade Center, was dumped in the Hudson River, which took quite a while. So we lived on that. Um, that apartment complex had 5,500 people living in it when we, on 9-11. By the time we moved back, only 500 people had returned. Wow. So many people left New York entirely. Uh, some people left temporarily and then decided never to come back. The experience of moving back in was the experience of the, uh, we lived in a rental apartment of the landlords trying to find people who were willing to live there. Mm -hmm. It became a, to live there became almost a tourist attraction. Wow. People from our next door, our new next door neighbors were, were uh, young professionals up from Texas who, had, who wanted to live there. They wanted to be close to experience and so they thought living there would do it Goodness. um so it felt a little bit like living in a fishbowl that the few of us who came back right. we got to know each other pretty well and we imagine roll our eyes in the elevator um and yet eventually we came to understand that this was this was natural and necessary for a neighborhood to repopulate itself mm -hmm. with people who, unlike us, did not have bad memories, did not have health problems, 
did not have PTSD. Um, and we, and when we, it took us a few years to understand that. And during that time, we felt completely out of sync with what was going on around us. Right. Um, uh, anyway, uh, I, I, uh, anyway, I'm going on and on. A lot of this so. stuff I'm telling you is alluded to in the book, but mm -hmm. the details of it ended up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> so. Well, I can imagine. I mean, I I was in you know living in in Manhattan during my college time, part of my college time, and I know how it was then, and just the you know the environment, um, and coming home every day, and you know having soot like you know material collect in your clothes and everything. And so I just take that times jillions to imagine what it was had to be like, you know, during that time. I mean. It just, I can't, it's beyond my imagination. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is a dirty city. It was a dirty city even before 9-11. You know, uh, every 24 hours, you could like write your name on the, in the soot on the windowsills, even when the windows were closed. And, you know, I got used to washing my hair every day and um, you just lived with it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, but afterwards it was, you know, the fires at the pit burned for months. Mm -hmm. So in addition to what fell when the towers fell, um, there was the smoke from the fires, which depending on how the wind blew, could you could smell it. Mm -hmm. There was the soot from the fires. There was the, you know, there was the constant traffic of the dump trucks removing the debris from the site, which itself was toxic because there were so many heavy metals in the construction. Um, um, the government never really determined how toxic it was because it was pulverized so fine that their instruments couldn't measure it. But of course, we all knew that it was a toxic dump site. Anyway, those dump, those dump trucks would be hosed down before they left the site. They would be covered with tarps and driven up to the closest um, pier where barges could come in which was just north of um, uh, VZ Street on the north side of the, the north perimeter of the site. That debris would be loaded onto barges, hosed down again, covered again with tarps, and then floated down the river to the, to the Fresh Kills site on Staten Island where all the debris is now. Um, but we could see those barges go by from our windows. So in one direction, we could see the smoke coming up. And in the other direction, we could see the barges going by. And if it was windy, which, you know, you're on a bay with a lot of wind, no matter what they had done, the dust would come out from the barges. So we lived in, um, with constant reminders of what had happened and how long it was going to take to do something. Um, and we lived in fear of breathing, which again brings me back to the pandemic. Right. Because the air has things in it that could kill us and have killed many people. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's kind of like another uh, form of, uh, of uh, adding to, I guess I could say, the PTSD that you would already have from you know, ground zero. And then a pandemic comes and it's like, oh, here it comes again. Yeah, it's, it's I don't want to overstate it, but, um, and as I said before, 
having experienced this kind of some of the same things, a lot of death in your community, mm -hmm. uh, living with fear, not understanding exactly how to protect yourself. Right. Um, doing the best you can. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I dealt with that better than many people I know who have just been, pardon the expression, wigged out mm -hmm. at every time the government changes what it says about it. And I think they're doing a good job. I think they're trying to do a good job. But the fact of the matter is, is it's a constantly moving ground of scientific knowledge, just the same as researching what was in the dust and what to do with it and how to protect yourself when you live close to the site um, was, it took them a long time, probably too long for a lot of people to actually tell us how to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Now, if you could pick a poem from your book that most, um, I guess we call your most favorite, if you call it a favorite poem, the one that you feel sends the message the most. Do you have a particular one that stands out to you? I do. I and do. Would you There's share that few, with There's a few, but I will. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me find it. Uh, almost. This book is so new that it doesn't fall open to the to the to the familiar pages yet. Um, this is a relatively early poem, meaning one that I wrote relatively early, but it's a poem which, as time goes by, seems to me to um, embody my growing understanding of what I experienced and what other people experienced. Um, it's called The Old Neighborhood. Where is the man who sold the best jelly donuts and coffee you sipped raising a blue Acropolis to your lips? The twin brothers who arrived in time for lunch hour with hot and cold heroes where liberty dead ends at the Hudson. The courteous, small-boned Egyptian in white robe and crocheted skullcap in the parking lot behind the Greek Orthodox shrine whose bananas and dates you could always count on. How about the tall, slim, dark brown man with dreadlocks cascading to his waist who grilled Hebrew National Franks to perfection and knew just the right amount of mustard each Kanish wanted. The cinnamon-skinned woman for whose roti people lined up halfway down church. The falafel cousins who remembered how much hot pepper you preferred. Don't forget the farmers who schlepped up from Cape May twice each week at dawn to bring us whatever was in season at its peak. That August, blueberries and white peaches. What about the tall lanky fellow who sold green and red and yellow bears and fish and snakes in plastic sandwich bags with twist ties, his friend a block away who scooped still warm nuts from a copper cauldron into palm-sized wax paper sacks he twisted at the corners to close. The couple outside the post office with their neatly laid out golden books, the shy Senegalese with briefcases of watches, except in December when they sold Christmas trees. The Mr. Softy who parked every evening rush hour by the cemetery 
to revive the homeward hurrying crowd. I know none of their names, but I can see their faces clear as I still see everything from that day. As I ride away from the place we once shared. Where are they now? And how? Wow. That's just, that's, wow, speechless. <sighs> Thank you. I think that people will be able to relate to that, wonder, you know, what happened. Too. I'm so glad I wrote that poem. I am too. My thank you. My memories, it's preserved for me in detail. Something that was lost, that was a part of my life, like the land I stood on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like the land and it I was, stood it on. Was, it was the New York that I knew and loved and hope would become again. Exactly. Wow. I'm at a loss for words. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, it, that just that really was... <laughs> got my heart, grabbed my heart, you know, you know, when poet to poet, you know. <laughs> um, does anybody um, have any other questions besides me? Irina waving. <laughs> no, and Andrea, I mean, um, I, I work in midtown Manhattan 23 years and my husband was he had a narrow escape at the tower so it's oh, very, I'm very, so very sorry cool. I'm so uh, sorry but what we came out unscathed and you know I've written over years just for myself <laughs> I'm not I'm not uh, a poet or author but um, this is inspiring me but one question I have when did you last visit New York I last visited New York to give a reading at one of the public library branches in December of 2019. So just a couple months before the pandemic. Um, I, I will say though, that I have not been to the site and I have not been to the museum. Um, the closest I've gotten to where we lived is about six blocks away and when the few times that's that's the location of a, a wonderful place now closed temporarily during the pandemic called poet's house i don't know if you know about it it's a library and reading space um, for poetry it has a children's poetry library a children's Hi. reading series it's beautiful and I and I would go there, uh, and I would I would I would walk in a direction so I didn't have to look at the site. Um, but I still have friends who live there. Um, uh, I have family that lives on the East Coast, so we travel through usually Newark to get to family. Um, it seems to me the city has changed a lot. And that was before the pandemic. I understand now it's just really in crisis in terms of the, the changed life. Um, anyway, I lived in New York from 1969. I shouldn't be saying this, but 1969, I have the white hair to prove it. Um, until 2004 when we moved to Los Angeles. Um, and it was my home. I still, part of me still feels like a New Yorker. I think if you live a long time in New York, part of you always feels like a New Yorker. It claims you, um, like it or not. <laughs> but in my case, it was, um, my husband was born in New York City. It was very hard for him to decide to leave, even though our life was just, it wasn't moving forward. It was stuck in the past. 
I hope. Um, so I feel with this book, I think I'll be writing about this material in one way or another for as long as I write. First of all, the, the story continues. Uh, the legacy continues. Um, and it's, it's my frame of reference. It happened to me in middle age. So it's almost like the fulcrum of my life. There was the life that came up to this moment. And now there's the life, however much I have. I have several more books in me, which I hope get published, but um, it's, it's the touchstone. And I have to tell you for, you know, as much as this interview may seem like I'm dwelling on, on the tough, difficult aspects of it, I feel lucky not only to have survived it, but I feel like I've been given this body of material, which people need or want, or everyone has their own stories. And frequently hearing my work revives people's own stories and desire to tell them. And so I feel like I, my life intersected with a world changing event mm -hmm. and I get to write about it. Yeah. I feel very lucky. Um, I'm not a religious person, but if I were, I would use the word blessed. You know, it, it, the poets, the writers, you know, we're the historians. And um, some of my favorite poetry to read is about someone's history, what's going on, what I call, it's not official, but I call it memoir type poetry, but relates to what somebody experienced, you know, and that's to me the best because not only is it poetry, it's history. It's to me a little closer to the soul. Well, I, you're speaking to the choir here <laughs> because it's not the only kind of poetry I write, but a lot of my poetry is about history. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research for this book, partly to confirm my own experiences. And right. obviously then there were the 11 people from Glenrock that I needed to do justice to. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always loved... Part of what I loved about living in New York City was its rich, long history. And so I did more reading about that. There's poems about, there's a poem about Henry Hudson's discovery of New York Harbor and his encounters with the local tribe that lived in the area at the time called the Lenny Lenape part of the Delaware nation. And his first mate um, kept, as all first mates on boats do, kept the ship's log. So it has a lot of information about tides and weather and soundings. But once they enter New York Harbor, he records encounters with the Lenny Lenape. And coincidentally on September 11th in 1609, there was a, uh, uh, an attack by the Dutch against the Lenapes and there was a death. And it sort of set the stage for many things that happened in this country later um, so there's a poem about that, and that I found by finding the transcription of this first mate's journal. There's poems about the history of the geology of the area, which has always fascinated me, and the, the fact that the Hudson River in the harbor is, is fresh water flowing down from the Adirondack Mountains under what's called the tidal wedge, which is the, the the salt water that comes in and goes out every day. Um, um, anyway, I, um, I just, 
I love doing research. I love libraries. My mother worked in a library. She taught me to love reading. Um, I don't think she realized what a monster she had unleashed, but anyway, <laughs> um, so. Andrea, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share? I wasn't prepared for that question. Um, I want to thank you for asking me what you did ask me and getting me to talk in ways that I don't really talk that much. I sort of let my voice speak on the page and because it's poetry, it's compressed and, um, and a lot has to be left out. Um, um, yes, there is something I would like to say. Um, as I've been reading this poetry, pretty much without exception, people want to tell me their stories. I mentioned that earlier. I find it incredibly moving. And it's been such a universal experience that I'm going to begin an, an initiative after my launch gets settled in which I invite people to send me their stories, either as a, a short selfie video uploaded to my Twitter account or Instagram, or to send me an email of up to a hundred words. I think that there's um, healing in storytelling. And I think we need healing. Mm -hmm. I think that the things that we as individuals, as a society, as a world have gone through in the last 20 years make the need for communication and sharing even more pressing. So if you don't mind when I launch that, I will let you know. Um, and I hope all of you will contribute. And I look forward to whatever, whatever stories you wanna say that the hashtag is gonna be, where were you? Where were you? Okay. Yes. And how could we find you? Um, are you on Twitter, Instagram, any social I'm both media? On, I'm, I'm a latecomer to, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram as um, Andrea Brown Poet. Same handle at both of them. Um, and through my website, you can reach me by email. There's a there's a contact Andrea page, which I will, which will come right to me. Um, so uh, there's, I, I, I encourage people, not by way of advertising, but by way of information to visit my website, because I created a whole page of September 12th material, which includes mm -hmm. an essay about how I wrote the book, but it includes photographs of artifacts from that time from my personal collection, a bag of dust that I collected in the apartment, um, a piece of ceiling tile, asbestos ceiling tile that we found just in the wind below the window of our apartment, um, photographs that I took, and I'm going to keep adding to that as the months go by because um, I love your, show and tell. <laughs> what is your website? I have one one site. Um, but I'm not sure it's the correct one. Yeah, it's it's andreacarterbrown.com. I want to thank you so much for being here today. Thank you all, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Lisa. Thank, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Come back again soon. Would you like to be on our podcast? Send an email to 
prolificpulse at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you soon. Thank you. Have a good day.